Welcome to volume 11 of Jeeves in the Morning. Chapter 27 The sun was high in the heavens, or fairly high, when I awoke the next morning. From behind the closed door of Boko's sleeping apartment, there proceeded a rhythmic sound like the sawing of wood, indicating that he had not yet sprung from his bed. I would like to waken him and ask him if all was well, but refrained. No doubt I felt he'd returned to the late hour and needed an extra bit of what I have heard Jeeves call tired nature's sweet restorer. I donned the bathing suit and bathrobe and started off for the river. I hadn't more than shoved my nerves outside the garden gate when along came Nobby on her bicycle. It would have been plain, even to the most casual observer, that Nobby was in the pink. Her eyes were shining like twin stars, as the expression is, and she greeted me with one of the heartiest pip-pips that ever proceeded from a female throat. Hello, Bertie, she cried. I say, Bertie, isn't everything super colossal? I think so, I replied. I hope so. I left Uncle Percy in a malleable mood, and Boko was going to confer with him. All should have gone well. Then you haven't heard? Didn't Boko tell you? I haven't seen him yet. Our waking moments have not synchronized. When he got back, I was asleep. And when I woke up, he was asleep. Oh, I see. Well, he came around in the small hours and threw gravel at my window and made his report. Everything went like a breeze. It did. According to Boko, the thing was a love feast. Uncle Percy sent him back to the bar for another bottle of champagne. And they split it like a couple of sailors on shore leave. And he's given his consent? Oh, definitely, Boko says. He's so grateful to you for all you've done, Bertie, and so am I. I could kiss you. Just as you wish, I assented civilly, and she did so. Then she legged it for the house, and I proceeded on my way to the river. My mood as I clove its crystal waters was, as you may imagine, pretty uplifted. Nobby's story had left no room for doubts that happy endings had come popping up like rabbits. I'd forgotten to ask her when she was going to show that letter to Florence, but no doubt this would be done in the course of the morning, releasing me from my honourable obligations. And as for her and Boko, it was well within the bounds of possibility that before nightfall they would be united in the bonds of holy wedlock. Boko had made no secret of the fact that for many a day past he had had the license tucked away in the drawer of his desk, ready to do its stuff the moment the starter's pistol went off. In addition to this, Stilton's uniform was floating on its way to sea, absolutely nothing to prove that it and Bertram had ever been in any way connected. It was just possible that some inkling of the truth might come to the promising young copper, causing him to regard me when we next met with sullen suspicion, and even to go so far as to grind his teeth. But as for his assembling a telling weight of evidence, which would land me on the dock, and subsequently in the lowest dungeon beneath the castle moat, not a hope. It was, accordingly, with no uncertain feelings that this was the maddest, merriest day of the year, that I returned to the house, where genial smells from the dining room greeted the nostrils and caused me to dress like a streak. Entering the food zone a few moments later, I found Boko restoring his tissues, with Nobby sitting on the end of the table drinking in his every word. Oh, Bertie, said Boko. Good morning, Bertie. Now that you're here, I'd better start again. He did so, and for some minutes held me spellbound. Even though I had heard the outline of the plot from Nobby, and so knew how it all came out in the end, I hung upon his lips from start to finish. 
You didn't get his consent in writing, I asked as he concluded. Well, no, he admitted. It never occurred to me. But if what is in your mind is that he may try to back out of it, don't worry. You have no conception, Bertie, literally no conception, of the chumminess which exists between us. Hands were shaken and back slapped. He was all over me like a bedspread. Well, to give you some idea, he said he wished he'd had a son like me. Well, considering he's got a son like Edwin, that isn't saying so much. Don't be a wet blanket, Bertie. Don't try to cast a gloom on this wonderful morning. Another thing he said was that he hoped I would be very successful in Hollywood and would remain working there for many years. In fact, indefinitely. One sees what he meant, of course. Like others, he has long chafe at the rottenness of motion pictures and is relying on me to raise the standards. You will, Angel, said Nobby. You betcha, said Boko, swilling coffee. The meal proceeded on its pleasant course. A less kindly man than Bertram Worcester might have struck a jarring note by bringing up the matter of that porpentine in my bed, but I refrained from this. Instead, I asked what became of Uncle Percy at the close of the proceedings. I suppose he went home by pushbike, said Boko. What did you do with Stilton's uniform, anyway? I explained that I had committed it to the deep, and he said I could not have made a wiser move and he was just starting to be dashed funny about my last night's outer crust when I stopped him with an imperious gesture. Out of the corner of my eye, I had seen something large and blue turning in at the garden gate. A moment later, there came the sound of feet crunching on gravel, and the timber and volume of the noise was such that only regulation official boots could have caused it. I was not surprised when in due season the torso and helmeted head of Stilton were framed in the open window, and more profoundly than ever, I congratulated myself on the shrewdness and foresight that had led me to bung that uniform into the river. Ah, Stilton, I said, and what is more, I said it airily. The keenest ear could not have detected that the conscience was not as clean as a whistle. One prefers, of course, on all occasions to be stainless and above reproach, but failing that, the next best thing is unquestionably to have got rid of the body. Boko, who's always a perfect host, bade the newcomer a cherry good morning and asked him to keep his mouth open and he could throw a sardine into it. But apparently he had already breakfasted, for he declined the invitation with a petulant jerk of the head. Ho! Oh. He said, touching for a moment on this idea of policemen and the word ho, I have an idea that the first thing they teach the young recruit on joining the force is how to utter that ejaculation. I've never yet met a Raza who didn't say it, and they all say it in just the same way. Inevitably, one is led to assume a course of schooling. So there you are, you blasted Worcester. Speculating as I had done from time to time since the previous evening, on the probable demeanor of this painstaking young officer, when next he should catch sight of me, I had never anticipated that it would be Elfin. I had budgeted for the dark frown, the flushed face, and the hard bulging eye, and they were all there, precisely as foreshadowed, and they found me ready to cope with them. I preserved my aplomb. Yes, I'm here, I responded, buttering a nonchalant slice of toast. Where else would I be, my dear Stilton? This, thanks to Bogo's princely hospitality, is where I am living. Oh, said Stilton. Well, you won't be living here much longer, 
because you're bolly well coming along with me. Boko looked at me and raised his eyebrows. I looked at Boko and raised my eyebrows. Nobby looked at both of us and raised her eyebrows. Then we looked at Stilton and all raised our eyebrows. It was one of those big eyebrow-raising mornings. Coming along with you? Surely, Stilton, said Boko. You do not use the expression in the technical sense. Yes, I do. You've come to arrest Birdie? Yes, I have. What for? Pinching my uniform. Nobby turned to me in girlish astonishment. Have you been pinching Stilton's uniform, Bertie? Certainly not. How lucky. Extremely fortunate. Because I suppose you could get about three months for a thing like that. Besides the shame of it all, I pointed out. If I ever feel the temptation to commit this rash act, I must fight against it. Not that I imagine I shall. Pretty unlikely. Nobby agreed. I mean, what on earth would you want with a policeman's uniform? Exactly, I said. You have touched the matter with a needle. Done what? One of Jeeves's gags, I explained. Rem something, Latin stuff. Boko, who had been frowning thoughtfully, went more deeply into this matter. I believe I know what's on Stilton's mind. He said, I don't think I told you, but yesterday, while he was bathing, somebody snitched his uniform, which he had left lying on the bank. Did I mention that? Not to my recollection, said Nobby. Not to mine, I said, shaking the bean. Odd. I suppose it slipped my mind. Things do, said Nobby. Frequently, I agreed. Well, that's what happened, and one can't blame him for wanting to bring the criminal to justice. But why he has got this extraordinary idea that it was Bertie who was responsible for the foul outrage is more than I can understand. I told you yesterday, Stilton, that the hidden hand was almost certainly young Edwin's. Yes, and I've just been tackling him about it. He denies it categorically. And you accept his word? Yes, I do. He has an alibi. Well, you perfect chump, cried Nobby. Don't you know that dishes him? Haven't you ever read any detective stories? Ask Lord Peter Whimsey what an alibi amounts to. Or Monsieur Perrault, I suggested. Yes, or Reggie Fortune. Or Inspector French, or Nero Wolf. I can't understand a man of your intelligence falling for that alibi stuff. Incredible, I said. The eldest trick in the game. Trot along and bust it, is my advice, Stilton, said Bogo. One might have expected a cop to wilt beneath all this, but speedily it became plain that the cheese rights were made of sterner stuff. If you want to know why I accept young Edwin's alibi, said Stilton, allowing his eyes to bulge a bit farther from their parent sockets. It's because it's supported by the vicar, the vicar's wife, the curate, the curate's sister, the doctor, the doctor's aunt, a scoutmaster, fifteen assorted tradesmen, and forty-seven boy scouts. It appears that the doctor was giving a lecture on first aid in the village hall yesterday, and Edwin was the chap who went on the platform and was illustrated on. At the moment when my uniform was being pinched, he was lying on a table, swathed in bandages, showing what you have to do to a bloke with a fractured thigh bone. This, I admit, spiked our guns to no little extent. Nobby did say that it might have been an accomplice cunningly disguised to look like Edwin, 
but you could see that it was just simply a suggestion. Yes, said Poco at length. That does seem to let Edwin out. But I still don't see where you get this extraordinary idea that Bertie is the culprit. I'll tell you that too, said Stilton, plainly resolved to keep nothing from us. Edwin, questioned, had an amazing story to relate. He stated that going to the accused bedroom later in the evening and putting a hedgehog in his bed. Ha! I exclaimed, and gave Bogo a penitent look, remorseful that even in thought I should have wronged my kind host. He saw the uniform there, and I met a chap this morning who had been an extra waiter at the fancy dress ball at East Wibley last night, and he informs me there was a loathsome-looking object taking part in the festivities, dressed in a policeman's uniform six sizes too large for him. I am ready to step along, Worcester, if you are. It seemed to me a fair cop, as I believe the expression is, and I saw nothing to be gained by postponing the inevitable. I rose and wiped the lips with a napkin, like a French aristocrat informed that the tumbrel was at the door. Boko's hat, however, was still in the ring. Just a minute, Stilton, he said. Not so fast, officer. Have you got a warrant? The question seemed to discompose Stilton. Why, I... well... no. Must have a warrant, said Boko. You can't make a summary arrest on a serious charge like this. The momentary weakness passed and Stilton was himself again. I don't believe it. He said stoutly. I think you're talking through your hat. Still, I'll go to the station and ask the sergeant. He vanished and Bogo became brisk and efficient. You'll have to leg it, Bertie, he said. And without a second's delay, get your car, drive to London, go abroad. They won't be watching the ports yet. Better go look in on the Cohen brothers en route and buy a false moustache. It isn't often that I would care to allow this borderline case's counsel to rule my actions, but on this occasion it seemed to me that his advice was good. I'd been thinking along the same lines myself. Oh, as a matter of fact, I had been just saying to myself at that very moment for the wings of a dove, briefly requesting him to get hold of Jeeves and tell him to follow with the personal effects I streaked for the garage and I was just about to fling by the gates when there suddenly came from the other side of the door the sound of a hoarse voice. I paused astounded. Unless the ears had deceived me, there was a human soul inside the edifice. It spoke again, and what enabled me to get abreast and identify the thorax from which it proceeded was the fact that one caught the name Fiddleworth, preceded by a number of qualifying adjectives of a rugged and rather Elizabethan nature. In a flash, I got the whole set up. Driving away from East Whipley Town Hall at the conclusion of the recent festivities, Boko must have inadvertently taken Uncle Percy with him. He'd sped home afterwards with a song on his lips, and little known to him, overlooked while getting a spot of tired nature's sweet restore in the back of the car, the old relative had come along for the ride. Chapter 28 I drew in the breath with a startled whoosh, and for some moments stood rooted to the spot, the brow furrowed, the eyes bulging. To say that this thing had come upon me like a sock behind the ear from a stuffed eel skin would be in no wise to overstate the facts. 
I stood there with my ear against the door, listening to what was filtering through the woodwork. It is not too much to say that melancholy marked me for its own. Consider the position, I mean. The one thing that was of the essence was that Bogo should keep this man a thing of sweetness and light, and it was absurd to suppose that this could be done by locking him up all night in garages in the costume of Sinbad the Sailor. A man of generous spirit like Uncle Percy inevitably chafes at such treatment. He was chafing now. I could hear him. The tone of his observations left no room for misunderstanding. They were not the obiter ticks of one who, when released, would laugh heartily at the amusing little misunderstanding, but rather of a man whose earnest endeavour it would be to skin the person responsible for his incarceration. Indeed, it was upon this very point that he had now begun to touch, and not only was he resolved to skin Boko, he stressed in unmistakable terms his intention of doing it lingeringly and with a blunt knife. In short, it was abundantly clear that, however beautiful might have been the friendship which had been started overnight between his host and himself, it had now taken a bad toss and definitely come unstuck. I found myself frankly unable to cope with the situation. It was one of those which seemed to call imperiously for a word or two of advice from Jeeves, and I was just regretting that he was not there when a gentle cough in my rear told me that he was. It was as if some sort of telepathy, if that's the word I want, had warned him that the young master had lost his grip and could do with a twopenny worth of feudal assistance. Jeeves, I cried, and clutched him by the coat sleeve like a lost child hooking onto its mother. When I had finished pouring my tail into his receptive ear, it was plain that he had not failed to grasp the nub. Most disturbing, sir, he said. Most, I responded. I refrained from wounding him with any word of censure and rebuke, but I could not but feel, as I have so frequently felt before, that a spot of leaping about and eyeball rolling would have been in more in keeping with the gravity of the situation. If Jeeves has a fault, as I think I have already mentioned, it is that he is too prone merely to tut at times when you would prefer to see his knotted and combined locks do a bit of parting. His lordship, you gather, sir, is incensed? I can answer that one. Yes, Jeeves. His remarks, as far as I was able to catch them, were unquestionably those of a man a good deal steamed up. What is the death of a thousand cuts? It is a penal sentence in vogue in Chinese police courts for minor offences, sir. Roughly equivalent to our fourteen days with the option of a fine. Why do you ask, sir? Uncle Percy happened to mention it in passing. It's one of the things he's planning to do to Boko when they get together. Good Lord, Jeeves! I exclaimed. Sir. The reason I had exclaimed, as above, was that this mention of police courts and penal sentences had suddenly reminded me of my own position. For a brief space, the mind occupied with this business of uncles in garages had slid away from the fact that I was a fugitive from a chain gang. You haven't heard the latest. Stilton! He's found out about the uniform and gone off to get warrants and things. Indeed, sir. Yes, young Edwin, creeping into my room last night in order to insinuate a hedgehog into my bed, saw the thing lying there and went and squealed to Stilton, the degraded little copper's knock, and only by making an immediate getaway can I hope to escape undergoing the utmost rigours of the law. You see the frightful dilemma I'm on the horns of. My car's in the garage. To get it, I have to open the door. 
and opening the door involves having Uncle Percy come popping out like a cork from a bottle. You shrink from an encounter with his lordship, sir. Yes, Jeeves, I shrink from an encounter with his lordship. Oh, I know what you're going to say. You're about to point out that it was Boko who lodged him in the coop and not me. Precisely, sir. You are armed so strong in honesty that his lordship's displeasure will pass by you as the idle wind, which you respect not. I dare say, but have you ever removed a wounded puma from a trap? No, sir, I have not had that experience. Well, anyone will tell you that on such occasions the animal does not pause to pick and choose. It just goes bald-headed for the nearest innocent bystander in sight. I appreciate your point, sir. It might be better if you were to return to the house and allow me to extricate his lordship. His nobility stunned me. Would you, Jeeves? Certainly, sir. That's pretty white of you. Not at all, sir. You could turn the key and shout all clear and then run like a rabbit. I would prefer to linger on the scene, sir, in hopes of doing something to smooth his lordship's wounded feelings. With honey words, you mean? Precisely, sir. I drew a deep breath. You wouldn't consider at least climbing a tree? No, sir. I drew another one. Well, all right, if you say so. You know best. Carry on, then, Jeeves. Very good, sir. I will bring your car to the front door so that you will be enabled to make an immediate start. I will follow later in the day with the suitcases. It was some slight consolation to me in this dark hour to reflect, as I tooled back to the house, that the news I was bearing would, if he was still eating sardines, cause those sardines to turn to ashes in Boko's mouth. I am not a vindictive man, but I was feeling in no amiable frame of mind toward that literary screwball. I mean, it's all very well for a chap to plead that he's an author and expect on the strength of that to get away with conduct which would qualify the ordinary man for a one-way ticket to Colney Hatch. But even an author, I felt, and think with justice, ought to have had the sense to glance through his car before he locked it up for the night to make sure there weren't any shipping magnets dozing in the back seat. As it happened, he was past the sardines phase. He was lolling in his chair in quiet enjoyment of the after-breakfast pipe, while Nobby at his side did the crossword puzzle in the morning paper. At the sight of Bertram, both expressed surprise. Why, hello, said Nobby. Haven't you gone yet? asked Bogo. No, I haven't, I replied, and laughed a hard, mirthless one. It caused Bogo to frown disprovingly. What's the idea of coming in here and trilling with laughter? He asked austerely. You must try to get it into your head, my lad, that this is not the time for that sort of thing. Don't you realise your position? Unless you're across the channel by nightfall, you haven't a hope. Where's your car? In the garage. Then get it out of the garage. I can't, I said, letting him have it right in the gizzard. Uncle Percy's there. And in a few crisp words, I slipped him the lowdown. I'd anticipated that my statement would get in amongst him a bit, and this expectation was fulfilled. Man and boy, I've seen a good many lower jaws fall, but never one that shut down with such a sudden swoop as his. It was surprising that the thing didn't come off on its hinges. But how was he in my car? He can't have been in my car. Why didn't I notice him? This, of course, was susceptible to a ready explanation. Because you're a fathead! 
Nobby, who since the initial spilling of the beans had been sitting bolt upright in a chair with gleaming eyes, making little gulping noises and chewing the lower lip with pearly teeth, endorsed this. Fathead! She concurred, speaking in a strange strangled voice. His right! Preoccupied though Boko was, there must have penetrated to his consciousness some inkling of what the harvest would be were she permitted to get going and really start hauling up her slacks. He strove to head her off with a tortured gesture. Just a minute, darling. Of all the... Yes, yes. Of all the chippering... Quite, quite, but half a second, Angel. Bernie and I are threshing out an important point. Let me try to envisage what happened after you left last night, Bertie. Here's the sequence as I recall it. I had my talk with old Warpleston, as I told you, and secured a guardian's blessing. And then, yes, I went back to the ballroom to tread the measure for a while. Of all the chippering, half-witted... Exactly, exactly, but don't interrupt the flow of my thoughts, precious. I was trying to get this thing straight. I danced a saraband or two, and then looked in at the bar for a moment. I wanted to get a snoopful and muse over my happiness, and I was doing that when it suddenly occurred to me that Nobby was probably tossing sleeplessly on a pillow, dying to hear everything that had come out, and I felt I must get home immediately and go and bung the gravel at her window. I raced to the car accordingly, sprang to the wheel and drove off. I see now why I didn't notice old Warpleston. Obviously, the man by the time had passed out and was lying on the floor. Well, dash it. A chap in my frame of mind, all joy and ecstasy and excitement, with his soul full to the brim of tender thoughts of the girl he loves, couldn't be expected to go over the floor of his car with a magnifying glass on the chance that there might be Warplestons there. Naturally not observing him, I assumed he had gone off on his pushbike. Would you have had me borrow a couple of bloodhounds and search the tonneau from end to end? I'm sure you understand everything now, darling, and will be the first to withdraw the adjective gibbering. Oh, I'm not angry, said Bogo. In fact, not even surprised that in the heat of the moment you should have spoken as you did, just as long as you realise that I am as innocent and blameless. At this juncture there was a confused noise without, and Uncle Percy crossed the threshold, moving well. A moment later, Jeeves shimmered in his wake. Having become so accustomed during our hobnobbings of the previous day to see this uncle by marriage in genial and comradely mood, I had almost forgotten how like the Assyrian swooping down on the fold he could look when deeply stirred, and that he was so now rather leaped to the eye. The ginger whiskers, which go with the costume of Sinbad the sailor, obviously obscured his countenance in a great extent rendering it difficult to note the full play of expression on the features. But one was able to observe his eyes, and that was enough to be going with. Fixing on Boko with an unwinking glare, they had the effect of causing that unhappy purveyor of wholesome literature for the masses to recoil at least a dozen feet. And he would undoubtedly have gone farther had he not fetched up against the wall. Jeeves had spoke of his intention of trying to smooth the ruffled Warpleston feelings with honeyed words, whether he hadn't been allowed to get one in edgewise, or whether he had tried a few and they hadn't been hunted enough, I was in no position to say. But the fact was patent that above feelings were still as ruffled as damn it, and that Hampshire contained at this moment no hotter under the collar shipping magnet. Proof of this was given by his opening speech, which consisted of the word what, repeated over and over again as if fired from a machine gun. It was always this uncle's practice, as I have mentioned, to what, what, what rather freely 
in moments of emotion, and he did not deviate from it on this occasion. What? He said, in part continuing to focus the eye on Boko. What? 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 Here he paused as if for a reply, and I think Boko did the wrong thing by asking him if he would like a sardine. The question seeming to touch an exposed nerve caused a sheet of flame to shoot from his eyes. Sardine! He said with bitter intonation. Sardine! 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 You'll feel better when you've had some breakfast, said Nobby, pulling a quick ministering angel thou. Uncle Percy opposed this view. Or shall not. The only thing that can make me feel better is to thrash that pie-faced young warthog Fiddleworth within an inch of his life. Bertie, get me a horsewhip. I pursed my lips dubiously. I don't believe we have one, I said. Are there any horsewhips on the premises, Boko? No, no horsewhips. The latter responded, now trying to get through the wall. Uncle Percy snorted. What a house! Jeeves! My lord. Go over to the hall. Bring me my horsewhip with the ivory handle. Yes, my lord. I think it's in my study. If not, hunt for it about there. Very good, my lord. No doubt her ladyship will be able to inform me of the instrument's whereabouts. He spoke so casually that it was perhaps three seconds by the stopwatch before Uncle Percy got the gist. When he did, he started, like one jabbed in the fleshy parts with a sudden bradawl. Her what? Her ladyship, my lord. Her ladyship? Yes, my lord. Uncle Percy had crumpled like a wet sock. He sank into a chair and clutched the marmalade jar as if for support. His eyes popped out of his head and waved about on their stalks. But her ladyship returned unexpectedly late last night, my lord.